Welcome to this episode of the Education Revolution Podcast. In this episode, Jerry interviews Rupa Reddy. Rupa traveled around the world to see 18 schools in her journey to learn more about learner-centered approaches to education. They discuss where she went, what she saw, what she learned, and how it could be applied to the public school system. Okay, so I'm speaking today with Rupa Reddy. How are you doing, Rupa? I'm doing well, thanks, Jerry. How are you? Okay, and where are you located? Right now I'm talking to you from Toronto, Canada. Toronto, okay. Um, well, um, so I, you did a very interesting presentation at the Aero Conference, uh, and it was about a, uh, a tour that you organized, and what was the purpose of it? Yeah, thanks, Jerry. Uh, well, it was a year-long project that I designed for myself, and I kind of called it a creative research or creative sabbatical year. And the purpose of it was to visit different innovative alternative models in different parts of the world and connect with inspiring educators who were behind some of these programs. And what were you trying to accomplish by this? So what I was trying to accomplish, to be honest with you, I, I did it as an alternative to a PhD. At, at, at the start, I was considering uh, studying alternative models through the lens of a PhD, and instead I thought, you know, it would be interesting to just get out there and learn as much as I could about some of the successful stories that are that are already happening uh, and educators running things uh, in small-scale versions and larger-scale versions, and to talk about things in more of a positive viewpoint. Uh, I was feeling like a lot of what we see out there is a lot of critique on systems and schools that are broken, but I thought it would be very interesting to be able to document and collect stories of what people were, were already designing and running in different parts of the world in, in very different contexts. And ultimately, what, would you, what were you hoping to use this information to do? So I was hoping to use this information to, one, for myself, to just learn about the landscape more in a hands-on way rather than just sit and read about it, but more importantly, to be able to share some of these stories with other educators, both in public spaces and alternative spaces, and even parents uh, and other interested educationists, uh, I suppose to be able to use some of this to inform the design of new programs uh, and enhance the implementation of programs that are already running. And ultimately, what do you want to do with this? Do you want to start a school? Do you want to help work at a school? Do you want to be a consultant? What kind of stuff do you think you'll wind up doing yourself? <laughs> That's an interesting question. I, I feel like in, in my case, Jerry, it's, it's a bit of all of the above right now. Uh, what I'm interested immediately in doing is, I mean, I, I created a, a short video series through these trips uh, in, in different parts of the world, so three to four minute short videos. So I'm creating an online course out of that that I hope to, to shape into an undergraduate online course. Uh, on the side, I'm already trying to help consult some smaller models, uh, but of course eventually plug into helping to design either an existing one uh, or create my own down in, in, in the longer term. Right. So, so your basic concept in doing this was you've heard lots of critiques of what's wrong with the school system, but you were trying to find people who had actually found solutions, things that worked. Exactly. I, I thought that the focus on what was 
wrong or the problems. It's just so much easier to critique what's happening rather than get out there and do something about it. And so I just found it much more inspiring to talk to the people actually doing doing things, you know, to who are questioning, not just questioning systems, but moving beyond that to creating what they felt were solutions, you know, not perfect solutions, there's no such thing, but but trying to make change uh, in the context that they they lived in and understood. So in the process of doing this, you went to 18 or so different places? That's Well, 18 different schools and, and counting more than that now. But basically in, in the year, I traveled to five different countries. A couple of them I had, had been to before. So a total of seven countries and 18 models of schools throughout those countries. Yeah. I see. And so were there some things that really surprised you when you did this? Yeah, there are a few surprises. I think one of them is to see that there's such a range of alternatives and and different definitions of what innovation looks like and what we mean by success and what we mean by quality. These are all big words. So to see that play out in different contexts. So to give you an example, I mean, one school like Green School in Bali, which is, you know, very impressive in terms of the infrastructure. It's on acres and acres of land and made out of bamboo. You have a school like that that's serving a primarily expat community, but doing things in a very innovative way, very experiential, allowing students to explore themes like ocean life to then study other subject areas. So you see you know, that as one end of the spectrum. And then you can have a very low resource school, like an art program that I saw in Dharavi, which is a, a so-called slum community in Bombay in India. And they're running with very little resources, but working with art to empower children from um, disadvantaged backgrounds and communities. So seeing just, I, I suppose, to answer your question, the range of of innovations out there, the range of possibilities, uh, depending on the context. And what do you think was the common theme of all these places that you went to? What was a common theme? I think a common theme that I noticed throughout these alternatives was the, I'd say the spirit of the educators or facilitators or leaders that were running these programs. There was so much heart in what they were doing. you know, not to sound vague about it, but I think there there needs to be a certain level of drive and courage to to do something that's not in the you know the usual mold. So a lot of these people weren't educators to start. Some of them were, but what the common thread was, they cared very much about the communities they were working in, and they were dedicated to to impacting those communities to to change, but not just in the short term. So realizing that this is. Education isn't a short-term, you know, one-year pilot project. You need to be in it for the long haul uh, is what I noticed as a common thread uh, across projects. Now, you talked about critiques of the current typical system. Have you had some experience with the traditional system? I have. The irony for me is that most of my experience, you know, apart from doing this project and my personal interest, you know, through my blog over the past few years, the rest of my experience was in traditional systems. You know, I studied for a long time throughout my 20s. That's all I was doing. So I have, you know, a handful of degrees from the traditional system. And I also taught in the system. So I, after doing grad school in international development, I became a trained teacher myself uh, in teacher's college here, here in Toronto. And then I taught for five years in higher education institutions. So at a university in an undergraduate program in business and also in 
college access program. So all of my teaching experience, much of it has been in, in traditional or so-called conventional classrooms. And, and so why was it that you, you somehow you sensed that there was something wrong in those approaches that you experienced? That's correct, yeah. And so and, that, that's what kind of pushed you in this direction. Yeah, I think, you know what it was, Jerry? I realized, I remember there was a moment when I was sitting in a teacher college class thinking about, you know, I was being trained to be a math teacher and a business teacher. Those were two of my teachables. But I remember thinking when I'm in that math classroom with high school students, something is not working. You know, I see the five students out of 25 really struggling with this material. And as a student teacher, I'm bending over backwards to try and help them after school and before school. But it just wasn't adding up, you know, funny enough in math, uh, that we just weren't following the pace of learning of the student. We weren't respecting that. And, and it was very difficult, even for teachers who want to in the public system in a subject like math, uh, it was very difficult to cater to the needs of each student uh, and, and to allow them to spend the time they may need, whether that's one day or three weeks with with playing with the material, with exploring it, with really enjoying it. And, and so, so seeing some of the fear that students had in math was definitely a big turnoff. Um, also, just this obsession with grades that we see in higher education as well. Uh, I think that was another thing that pushed me, you know, to delve a bit deeper into questions like, what is the purpose of all of this? You know, is it just economic? Or are we just helping these people try and get careers that are based on rankings? Like, none of that made sense to me. And so I started reading people like Krishnamurti and understanding what do we mean by freedom and learning and how do we really start to get into more holistic models that can serve the individual, that can serve society in, in deeper, more meaningful ways. And, and so I think getting into that level of questioning uh, alongside the teaching experience I was, uh, I was starting to accumulate, I think those things kind of came together um, into wanting to experience alternatives uh, more closely. So, so what do you think um, is the um, difference between the traditional system and the schools that you visited? That's a good question. There's lots of differences between, you know, conventional systems right. and some of these alternatives. And I yeah. don't want to knock completely on the traditional systems or conventional ones, I should say. But I will say, especially with the alternatives I've been able to connect with, Having smaller, you know, programs to start, having the flexibility to play a little more. And I don't, I don't say play lightly. I mean, you know, to be able to explore what's working and what's not and, and, and not just have to follow certain mandates for four-year terms or eight-year terms based on, you know, leadership. I think that is, is kind of a magical piece of some of these smaller alternatives. Uh, and I was just thinking earlier today, you know, here in Toronto and in, in, in many parts of North America, there's this emphasis in the business world and in education right now on high impact, high growth possibilities. And I think those are important, you know, high tech um, disruptions. People love the word disruptions in education and business. But I think there's also something very special about smaller models and small scale ideas and programs that are taking time to really understand the learners in front of them and the communities that they're in and ask those those questions about what are the what do programs need to look like to best serve these students that I'm working with and these communities they live in because the answer that you'll have is very different to what I might have and that's okay and I think that's something that is difficult to get to when you're working in bigger institutions. 
Okay. So now, can you give us some real-life examples of some things that you saw that really were eye-openers? Yeah, sure. I can give you a few examples of some eye-opening things for me. One was, I mean, I, I, I mentioned this at Arrow as well. I, I fell in love with Columbia. I've been there a few times. And seeing the range of programs in a country like that. So one example was a program that had to do with bringing technology to rural areas. So the theme I was exploring there is technology versus tradition. And, and there is a really interesting educator who was using the model of Sugata Mitra, who, uh, you know, started the, the school in the, sorry, hole in the wall experiment and, and self-organized learning environments. So the idea is you take technology into areas that may not have access to trained teachers or may not have access to the internet generally and, and see how learning can happen in those environments. And so that's what he was doing in, in rural areas of Colombia is, is helping bring what they call big questions. Uh, he explains that as seeds of discovery for students. So you ask these big, broad questions and allow students to explore what the answers might be, you know, through using the resources of the internet in front of them and, and seeing that uh, you know how that can be facilitated was pretty eye-opening in that context. For me. What did you What did you say? Uh, so what, what did you say? Oh no! I, I sorry. I interviewed the educator who does those programs. Oh, but you didn't actually see this. You didn't see it in action, though. No, that I didn't get to see in action, other than sort of images and videos from from the educator. Tell me something you've actually seen in the all of these different places you went to that you think was quite. Um, quite significant and different. Sure. I can kind of contrast two examples. One would be, I already mentioned, the art program for empowerment in the RV Swam in, in Bombay. That one was, it was a, a pretty, immer like, I would say intense experience in sense of seeing, like, such a big community that, by all standards, is not well off, and seeing the passion that those educators had in this tiny room of where they'd have art classes for at least a dozen kids, maybe more. And so seeing them teach art to these children who may not have other safe spaces to be at before and after school, that was pretty eye-opening and seeing how, how much more support they could have. You know, these grassroots programs in so-called developing countries need a lot more support in order to keep them sustainable, you know, financially. Was, so seeing what, that was... Was, was this a public, was this a public school or a separate program? No, no, this was just run by two individuals. It's called Dharavi Art Room. Uh, and so this is definitely not a public program. So this it was, is just it was a separate, a standalone, standalone program. Exactly. It's a standalone program, but they've been dedicated to doing it for a long time. Like the, the one young gentleman who started has been at it for almost a decade now, teaching art, using his skills in art because he studied fine art. So he's an artist himself using his skills to teach. The students who were in are mostly uh, low-income local kids? Yeah, all of them were. I mean, this is, Darby is, is one of the biggest slums in the world. There's an estimated almost million people living in these slum communities. So all of the children come from, from quite disadvantaged backgrounds, typically from lower kind of classes and castes in India. So that was really special for me to see, and these kids being so interested in art. Uh, was fantastic, to be honest. That was one eye-opening one. Another one was closer to home was in New York, where, and that was actually a public school, and it's called TWILS, the Young Women's Leadership Schools, and that's one school where it's dedicated to helping 
young women, so it was all girls, as I mentioned, get into college. And these are young women who have, who in their families, uh, typically the majority of them do not have anybody else who's been to college in their family. So they're the first ones to move beyond high school. And so seeing the contrast of that, you know, where grades were really important and, uh, you know, some of these things that we tend to knock in conventional systems could help some of these students, you know, move move beyond their current socioeconomic situation. So understanding the reality of that was also eye-opening for me as somebody who typically, you know, is, is very critical of things like standardized testing and, and using grades at all, to be honest. So okay. that was um, another one. Can, can you give us a couple other examples of places that you went to and some of the things you saw? Yeah, sure. I'm trying to think of other ones that would be of interest to you. Another one that I was connected to, I think I've mentioned uh, Haiti, that I was uh, that I spent time in Capation working with a nutrition and education center for women and children there. So that was also interesting because they've had some foreign investment or donors, I should say, in helping give things like laptops and, and sewing machines, but seeing, I think the importance of seeing what was really needed by the community and women there, like what they really needed was training on nutrition for their children and you know, things like family planning, which are sometimes taboo topics in some of these contexts. So that one was interesting as well. And, and, and seeing that, you know, entrepreneurship isn't the answer for everybody. That tends to be what is pushed sort of by, by the West into developing countries and seeing that some of these women had zero experience with entrepreneurship. And so just trying to kind of push some of those concepts wasn't always wise, you know, seeing that they cared more about things that they could understand in the present. You know, how are they going to get more income now? How are they going to help feed their children and and, and helping them understand the merits of learning for themselves, you know? So that was another another model. Um, sorry. No, I was going to say, an, yeah, another example I can, I can think of uh, was, I, I briefly mentioned the, the beauty of green school in terms of what it looks like, but seeing the programming there was also very interesting and seeing what can happen when you give people and learners and young people physical space. So these students were kind of like, they were like mini leaders uh, in their own right. And, and I mean, you're aware of this with democratic schools, et cetera, but seeing, you know, a middle age, middle school age student be able to take us on a tour of the school and talk about how in the morning he had a class in surfing. And that was part of his, daily routine. I thought that was pretty exceptional. Uh, and, and you just notice that when people are given the physical space to explore, uh, that it just brings out a different type of confidence in, in people and especially in young people. And, and that struck home with me too, that if we can kind of provide young people with the opportunities to learn outdoors and from their surroundings, then we really should be working harder to do that. Yeah, speaking of surfing, it reminds me of a story that Yaakov Hecht tells about a boy who came to his school who was only interested in windsurfing. And so Yaakov said, okay, we're <laughs> going to make your whole curriculum about windsurfing, how to design them, the history, and then you go out and, and, you'll, and you'll, you'll do it. And so he did this, and he, he became the only person from Israel ever to win a gold medal in the Olympics in windsurfing. <laughs> wow that's yeah that's fascinating exactly so those are the kinds of stories like at green school one of the uh, educators i interviewed 
um, his name is Aaron Eden, he was telling me, you know, he really thinks we need to redefine how we view success with kids, you know. And one, and he mentioned the same thing about you can take any entry point. If you're interested in surfing, if you're interested in video games, you can use that as an entry point to learn about so many different things, you know, and you can learn about psychology through video games and, and this kind of thing. So really just shifting the way we, we think about how people need to learn, you know, that was another thing I took away. Right, right. So as, I, as I've said, and what I think the commonality is with a lot of these schools is that they are learner-centered and, uh, and not, um, you know, not curriculum-driven. And so I think that... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that, again, this, this is an example of basing your ideas on the interest of the student. Yes, absolutely. And you had asked that earlier in a common thread. I mean, I had mentioned sort of the passion and the drive of the educators, but you're absolutely right. On the flip side, you know, being able to give over that power, so to speak, to the learner or the child or the student, however you see it. And that's one thing that Another, uh, you know, co-founder at Calapa, which is a school in Bogota, also affiliated with Arrow, as you know, and that's exactly what Veronica told me when I spoke to her is, you know, that to be able to, you need to be able to trust, you know, the child and give them that ability um, to, 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 to help direct their own learning, right, and to you know, and to give them that space. And, and at first that feels chaotic, maybe for a long time, there are moments of chaos, but that's really important in order to get to meaningful learning, you right. know, from the eyes of the, of the student. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I almost hate to ask this question because people do ask it these days and I don't think it's as relevant as people think, but do you feel that some of these ideas you saw can be scaled up and be used in mainstream schools? Yeah, absolutely. The funny thing is, I told you earlier <laughs> that there's such a big, you know, uh, focus on impact and, and scale. And sometimes I, you know, to be honest, I, I, I shy away from, from that because I don't think that there, everything needs to be scaled up. But that said, I, I do think it's important to think about growth. And in, in my view, Jerry, I, I think about how do we bring these ideas to public spaces as well, public schools where, you know, a lot of students are still in those systems, right? And for me, that's part of growth and impact. So to answer your question, I think, yes, I think maybe not in its entirety, like some, a program like Pono, which focuses two days a week on outdoor education, uh, two days a week indoors, and one day a week on a mentorship day where students are kind of leading, you know, working on a project they've chosen. That's a great model you know, to talk about this, I think you can take at least an excerpt of that. Maybe in public schools, we could have a half a day a week that's completely outdoors and self-directed. You know, that would be a start. So I think we need to be more open in terms of how these changes can scale up. You know what I mean? Like, it's not always possible to take the entire model and scale it up, but I think that we can take ideas from these models and, and use them to help scale other larger programs. Right. Well, I, 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 that's the big question, you know, because there just does seem to be such a basic philosophical difference between what is happening. What, what yes. do you think really holds the, the traditional schools back from doing these things? That is a good and big question. What is holding them back from trying? You know, I think there are schools, I've seen public schools here in Ontario that are trying, you know, having yoga in the mornings and mindfulness moments and this kind of thing. But I think one thing is just the sheer size of the, you know, I don't want to say bureaucracy, but it's true. You know, you have 
governments that come in for four-year periods uh, here at least in, in Ontario when we think about that and you have these priorities that are set out you know at the ministry level that come down to these schools and so you're following these mandates for set periods of time you know so even as I'm saying that like I'm, I'm partly boring myself to tell you the truth because it's like this reliance on the trickle-down effect of something that somebody in a ministry has decided you know, should be happening in, in classrooms, and that doesn't always translate, even if there's good intentions behind it, you know, there are some valid changes maybe being proposed, but to, to get everybody on board in larger school systems is very difficult, because as I said, to start, you know, one of the commonalities in the alternative schools I found is really passionate, dedicated right. individual educators, right, or leader, and it's hard to get everybody on the same page when right. the ideas aren't necessarily coming from those educators, right? Like, and, and again, I'm not trying to knock those educators. I'm just saying they might not have the space to, to, to get on board. Sorry, go ahead. And, no, and maybe one of the things would be for them to be able to, traditional educators to be able to see some of these things actually working. And since that's hard, maybe what you're doing with trying to get these videos, maybe one step in that direction. I hope so, Jerry. You know, it's funny. I, I think the exposure to some of these concepts, and I, I fall into that bucket earlier of somebody who was, you know, I told you, tr traditionally or conventionally trained as a teacher, you know, and I just didn't last very long. Even in the training, I started to question it right away. It just didn't make sense to me. But that said, I did a workshop with teachers college students uh, here in, in Waterloo, and the funny thing is the feedback is exactly the kind of thing you're saying, where they said, you know, like it's so nice to be exposed to ideas that we wouldn't have been exposed to otherwise. Some of us haven't been able to travel, you know, outside of Kitchener-Waterloo of, of the region, you know, forget outside of Ontario. So to see some of these ideas and, and be able to discuss them, whether it's in the context of three-minute videos where somebody's, you know, mentioning one of these points, uh, and then to be able to build their experience, you know, it's like a, it's more of a conversation then. And I think being able to facilitate those conversations right when teachers are being trained as teachers, I think that's an important starting point, you know, to be a bit more critical along the way in, in this profession, I think is, is so important. And, and I hope more of that happens. Well, Rupa, it's been great having you on here. And I think this is going to be a very enlightening thing for people who will be listening to this. Any last words to uh, before we finish up? No, I just want to thank for having me, Jerry. I think Arrow is a fantastic platform, and, and being able to present there last year was a really important part of my own learning. So I thank you for continuing continuing all of this fantastic work. We appreciate well, it. Well, thanks a lot for coming to our the Arrow Conference last year. Maybe you can come again this year. It's going to be in August here in Long Island. Um, and uh, really appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much, Jerry, uh, and hope to talk to you soon. Take All right. Care. Take care. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Education Revolution podcast. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach Arrow at jerryarrow at aol.com. That's J-E-R-R-Y-A-E-R-O at aol.com or at 516-621-2195.